0: All right, you guys. With that, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter two. Thirty minutes left, um, and that's what we'll we'll preach. We'll preach until we're out of time, and then we'll let you guys get out of here. Hey, um, let's try something. If we could, really quickly, Um, give give me a quick show of hands if you're planning on attending or being there with us on the float, either in Grantsville or Twila. Raise your hand. Okay, we're gonna have lots of folks. All right, and I know we got some people from California. My brother and his family's coming. Um, one of the uh, one of our friends from California, Eric and Jennifer Brewer, uh, he's a CHP officer who was uh, part of our, our church family back home. Him and his family are coming up, so we'll have, I think, lots of folks to ride and walk the, the float. All right, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. What is the book of Hebrews about? Last week we learned really quickly, right here, can you guys see this? If you ever forget what the book of Hebrews is about, just look over my head. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus, the the life of Of the hebrews in the day was was changing and we talked about for the first time in human history There was a group of people who were born under the law of moses who died under the dispensation of grace That jesus had died on a cross somewhere in the middle of that and they died or they lived the last half of their lives Relating to god very differently than the front half the book of hebrews is written to hebrew christians Who who were in jerusalem the temple was still there? It wouldn't be until AD 70 that the temple was destroyed and that God would put on hold until this day, animal sacrifices on the temple mount in Jerusalem. And and so Paul is preaching to a group of Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem. And really the whole entire point that Paul is making is that Jesus is supreme. Last week we saw where Jesus was supreme over the angels. We spent a lot of time last week giving you scriptures to prove that say very plainly, Jesus is God. And then there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of controversy. And again, one of the things that we hear people say from time to time is if Jesus is God, then why doesn't the Bible just plainly say he's God? And, and the reality is you just don't read the Bible if you say that because it says it so many times over and over and over again in the Bible. And we went to five of the most plain, easiest places in the New Testament where, where the Bible says that Jesus is absolutely God, where Jesus claimed to be God where his disciples called him God, where his followers called him God, and that Jesus is divine. And so today, as, as Paul is going to continue, he's going to continue on this theme, that Jesus is greater than the angels. As we look at um, chapter 1, verse 1 from last week, one of the, the things that I want to highlight, I want you to remember, it says that God, who in various times and in various ways spoke in times past by, to the fathers by the prophets, how did he speak in times past? By the prophets, listen, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, Jesus. And we saw in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is the Word, the Logos. And that God speaks through His Son. There was a story, I was going to read it to you guys, but for time I'll just tell it to you in brief. But there was a a fish shop, a butcher shop. True story. And and it was Hasidic Jews who ran this shop. And they were were butchering, butchering carp getting ready for Shabbat. And the story goes, it made the New York Times. It traveled all over the world. You can look it up when you get home. Print the article and read it or go through it. But as the guy went to butcher the fish, he said the fish began to scream in Hebrew prophetic sayings. And, and they laughed at him and they said it was a joke. And the one guy that was his apprentice, so one Jew and one um, Spanish immigrant who, who came from Ecuador who was helping him, and he was a devout Christian. And he said, I don't believe any Jewish stuff, but he said, I heard that fish talk. And the other guy said that, that as he went to butcher the fish, the fish began to speak prophetically in Hebrew. And I don't know, I guess God can, he spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament. He speaks through a donkey every week at Tula Springs. He spoke to, through a burning bush. Could God do that? Absolutely. I guess he could speak to some Hasidic Jews who weren't listening through a fish. You know, in the Catholic Church, they have a um, a, a doctrine of, of, of certain appearances of Old Testament saints and different saints throughout the years and apparitions. And, you know, I think the last one that I heard of here in the United States was the Virgin Mary and the produce aisle and something. I don't remember. You guys ever hear this story? Anybody? Virgin Mary. She was her picture appeared on a. Piece of watermelon or something in the produce aisle, and it was an apparition. And and there's actually an official um, Catholic doctrine in the Vatican where they look over all these things, and there's so many over the years that they've approved as actual sayings and things of God. Now, for you and I, listen. The warning, the 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 thing is, hopefully, you just when you hear this stuff, you know, if I told you, if I read the story about the talking fish, you guys would start to chuckle a little bit, but but rightfully so in that. We know that God speaks through his word. So if you're looking for a talking fish to bring revelation of God, or if you think that, that, that the Virgin Mary appearing on a piece of toast is, is the way that God brings new revelation, we know that according to Hebrews that God in these last days speaks through his son. So, so really the skinny of all this is that, is that you have the word of God. And again, I'm not even making a point on on the Virgin Mary appearing or on the talking fish. To me, it's irrelevant either way. But what I want to communicate to you guys is that for us, for you, when you see these things, you don't have to be moved. You you don't have to worry that you need those things to understand something of God. You have the full revelation of God's word. You have Jesus and the son of God who speaks thoroughly and through you and to you. So we don't have to be moved by those things. Does God speak and do things differently? I think He can. But I think to those of us that have the Word of God, the number one way that Jesus speaks is, God speaks to us, is through His Son. And His Son is through the Word. It is the Word. Amen? Amen. So when you see those things, sometimes from time to time, I'll see a different pastor, a different leader, especially in the area of end times. There was a particular guy, and, and he was teaching, and I was teaching here with you guys through the book of Revelation. And I was listening to different pastors on biblical prophecy and doing my homework and studying. And I ran into this particular ministry and, and this guy was cutting edge on on end time stuff. And his stuff was really good. And, and he and he taught a message. And in the end of it, it, it went into an infomercial and he had a DVD set that was ninety nine ninety nine. If you buy today, you get two. And um, and it was this infomercial to this DVD set that he was making on end times prophecies and revelations. And I can remember in my heart, after hearing his message, and the message was, he, there, there's a place called um, CERN in Switzerland, and it's where they're, they're colliding atoms through this big, huge tube. They spent trillions and billions of dollars um, trying to redo the Big Bang. And they have this tube that's a mile long in the ground, and they shoot stuff through it to collide on the other side. And, and he was teaching on how the, anyways, I, I, I saw the infomercial, and I started thinking, man, I, I, I need to buy that because I, I need to know what he knows and I, I need to have that. And as soon as I felt that, immediately a red flag went up. And, and I stopped listening to him and his ministry because I said, you know, I don't need him. I need Jesus. I have the revelation. I have the word of God. And when I start to feel like I have to have somebody in order to know God or be close to God, it's dangerous. I try to preach. I try to, you know, my, my biggest fear in ministry because I've seen it happen to one of my best friends. In ministry, I destroyed his life, destroyed other people's lives right in front of me. But the Bible says that we should never draw disciples unto ourselves. The, the, the Bible says, let your light shine. Now listen, there's no prohibition in the Bible as you being a Christian whose light shines super bright. That's what God tells you to do. Let your light shine so bright that the whole world will see it. That's a pretty bright light. Bible doesn't, doesn't prohibit that. It doesn't frown upon that. It just says, but when your light shines, make sure you do it in such a way that my Father in heaven receives the glory. And so we should be bright lights for Jesus. But just making sure that we're not drawing people to ourselves, that we're pointing people to the one who can help, and that's Jesus. Amen? Amen? So this is what Paul is talking about, the supremacy of Jesus, and that revelation comes through Jesus, and that what you need and what I need. And the answer to your problems is... It's Jesus. It's in Jesus and through Jesus. Paul's already told us in the first chapter that Jesus created all things. And for his glory were all things created. And that Jesus holds all things together. We talked about laminin last week and atomic glue. The fact that that it's the hand of Jesus that holds every matter together. And Peter tells us one day in the end times that everything that we have materially is going to burn with a fervent heat and fire. And when that happens, that's the day where Jesus is finally going to let go of everything that he holds together. And the biggest atom bomb is going to go off. But a good thing, right? The Bible says, behold, God said, I create a new heaven and a new earth. And when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, in that time, Jesus is going to let go of this one. And it's all going to burn. Anybody get a new car in here? New house, something you're proud of? It's all going to burn, baby. You know, I was talking to a guy recently, and he was telling me that uh, Elvis used to give away Cadillacs. Did you guys know that? He was all impressed about these Cadillacs that Elvis used to give away, and I was, I was, I was being hard, but I said, you know, so unimpressed. And I said, how did that end for him? I think didn't end to the bottom of, you know, drug overdose at the end of the day, uh, in a, And where did that lifestyle lead him? But, but where are all those Cadillacs today that Elvis gave away? Where are they? They're in a junkyard somewhere, right? They're, they're smashed into a heap, and one day those things are all going to burn. All right. So chapter 2, verse 1, more of Jesus, it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So really quickly, Paul's going to begin chapter 2 with a warning against you drifting away from the gospel. Let me ask you guys a question. Is it possible for you to drift away in your faith? Do we see it over and over and over again? You know, unfortunately, the, the Apostle Paul, he calls some people out by name. I would not, not want to be mentioned in the Bible by the names that the Apostle Paul calls out on some of these people. Some who were faithful to him, who had left him, who had, who had hurt him in the ministry. And others who were struggling, who, um, like Mark, who, who came back to faith. And Paul said, at one point, get Mark away from me. He left me and he's not worthy of the gospel. Late in life, Paul says, bring to me, Mark. He's he's helpful to me because he came back and he walked with the Lord. You know, as we look around church every year, even today, as I look around this room, there's some of you in here today who we won't see next year this time. I was thinking of this year this morning, the 4th of July. I was looking at some of the pictures of the folks that were with us at the parade last year who, who haven't been around. And I don't know where they are. Hopefully they're still walking with the Lord and and not have fallen. But unfortunately, the reality is we're we're prone to wonder. Amen? And, And Paul is going to give us a warning about wondering. And I want to give you just encouragement that when the Bible gives a warning that we should take heed. And there's some simple things that God has put in. And just like anything, life is fickle you you know one of the things that 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 the marines and and the military and the our soldiers you know and 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 in the last 15 years in wartime in in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places, Somalia and and a lot of the the marines and, and 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 soldiers that I've that I've counseled with as a pastor, what happens is when you go to um Iraq, Afghanistan, especially in, you know some of these guys in wartimes and, and you, you, when you go, it becomes a new reality for you. you. You have to immerse your life and yourself in that culture and, that, and being that person. And, and then transitioning out of that when you come home, it, and just in a matter of six months, it becomes who you are and your life and everything. And you, you've so immersed yourself in it that, that transitioning back and forth between it becomes very difficult. And oftentimes a longing to go back. To, to have that as a part. And listen, you, you, you know, these guys were, were 19, 20 years old. And most of what we did in the last 15 years in Iraq and Afghanistan was done with 19 and 20 year old kids. But, but in six months, that became a new reality. And my point is that we, we in life, that we can adapt that fast. Do You know how long it takes you to, you know, stop walking with the Lord? to become lukewarm in your faith, something that the Bible here, Paul is warning about, and we should take heed. We should take things in our lives that, that, that keep us from wondering, as, as the famous hymn says, prone to wonder. You know, the, 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 the thing that, that you know, I have give you every week that's the most important, that's a powerful, just easy, practical tool in your life to keep you from wondering, what is it? Read your Bible. Come on. Read your Bible and pray every day. You can laugh every time I say that, but I'm telling you what, there's nothing more important I can tell you. If, if you'll be in a position of reading your Bible by yourself, have a habit of doing what we call devos. Everybody say devos. How many of you guys remember the band Devo? <laughs> what was it? Whip it. Oh, whip it. Yeah, that's a jam right there. <laughs> Okay, so just think of whip it, okay? Devo, devotions, it's short for devotions. So you live your life around devos. And every day, just real simply, you do a 10-minute, a 5-minute, a 15-minute devo, and it will help you prone to wander. There's a river, um, it's a Weatherby River, true story. And, and there's a fall on one end of the river. And there's boating and different things that happen on the river, but there's big signs. And the signs simply read, do you have an anchor? And do you know how to use it? Because if not, you're going over. And, and there's, there's safe blocks that we put in our life and our ministry. And Paul is warning us from being prone to wonder. And in verse 2 he says, For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast that every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So the things that the angels spoke were proven steadfast. Paul's, Paul's making a point first that Jesus is greater than the angels. But in order to make the point that Jesus is greater than the angels, he first is going to make the point that Jesus um, or that the angels are respected and that they are something of importance and then that Jesus is better. And he says, well, as God used angels throughout history, everything that they did was proven steadfast, right? The angels showed up to Abraham and they said that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Gabriel showed up to Mary, and he told her that she was going to be pregnant with a, with a child as a virgin. And what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon her, and she, she got pregnant with a child, the Lord Jesus. The angel came to her her cousin Mary and gave her a vision, and, and it came true. And so as God uses the angels throughout history, every time they bring a revelation, it, it comes to pass. And in verse 3, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So first part of verse three is is again a warning, an encouragement to you to not neglect the salvation that God has given you. Paul is going to go on, he's going to use some really strong, um, vivid language here by the the time we get into a little bit later, a couple chapters later in Hebrews along the idea of you not missing the salvation that God offers for you. Okay, whenever I tell this, it's just the way I heard it, my wife always gets upset with me. So get ready, lid. It's like when I talk about farts in church. You should hear the conversations we have to have after on the way home. I'm in trouble, so I won't talk about farts today. Um, and these are Paul's words, not mine. But Paul says that in order for you to miss the salvation that God has offered you, that you have to trample through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's Bible. That's not the part I get in trouble for. But when I first heard that, a pastor was, was explaining this, and it's a picture that's always stuck in my head. And he said, if you take your, your shoes and your socks off, and you, you walk through warm blood, there, there's, a, there's a, yeah. And, and literally, that's the picture that the Bible gives. That God will do absolutely everything in his power to to keep you from missing the free gift of salvation that God has for you. Apart from invading your own free will. And God is going to give you a choice and a free will. And listen, here's why. The reason why God allows you, even to your own detriment, to, to have a free will choice of whether you want to receive the Lord Jesus and the plan of salvation that God laid out for you. Whether you reject that because you didn't like the plan that he laid out or you think it's immoral or whatever your reasoning is, is that the reason why is so that if you do choose God and if you do choose to believe and to serve and to love, God absolutely has something to reward you for. But if he forced you, if he helped you make that decision apart from your will there's, there's no relationship. There's no love. There's no reward. There's nothing genuine. Then that God can say to you, "Here is your reward for the choice that you've made to follow Me and love Me." And so there has to be a free choice. There has to be a free will, and God's not gonna, God's not gonna step over that for any of you. But I do want to say the Bible talks about, and Paul mentions here in the first part of Hebrews, He's going to bring it up, and we'll bring it up again later when we when we get to this part in Hebrews, where the Bible says that you, you know, in order to miss. The salvation that God has for you, you have to literally trample through the blood of Jesus Christ because God absolutely, the Bible says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That God does not want to see anyone perish, but that all would come to salvation through through a saving grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? And then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, I'm sorry, second half of verse 3 quickly. He says, the Lord, we heard it from the Lord, and was confirmed to, the, to us by those who heard it. So the second half of verse 3, I think is important, it talks about us being and receiving the gospel through the witness of other people, right? And, and I've heard it said before, I don't know if it's true or not, or how you, how you qualify, quantify this, but that it takes 50 people to lead one person to Jesus. That the different testimonies and stories and things that eventually 50 different people came into account in someone's decision to follow Jesus. But the bottom line is that God has chosen you and I to be the bearers of the gospel. And that we have to have a passion, a vision to be missional, to share our faith. You know what the world hates and what the world labels um, us Christians as? You know, the Bible says the world would hate us. And this is one of the reasons. You know, when I first moved here to Tooele, I had a regular job, was was bivocational until um, the church grew and and I came on staff here at the church. And I can remember being at work in in the warehouse and, you know, just just try not to be obnoxious, but definitely being somebody who would share my faith with the folks that God put next to me. And, and, and one guy in particular, you know, was, hey, what, what's wrong with you? Why do you feel the need to, to share your faith? Why do you feel the need to to proselytize? Why do you feel the need to convert people? And, and, and I just told him that, you know, I, I have this burning passion that, you know, because what I believe is a matter of life and death and safety. And he said, well, I know other people that have, you know, convictions that they don't need to push on other people. And I said, yeah, other people's convictions are different than mine. Because in the end of the day, the Bible says that if you don't know Jesus, that you're, you're not going to go to heaven. And if I know that I have a matter of something that's life and death, it's burning in me. I have to share it. You know, and at the end of the day, here's the deal. Would you rather be a little obnoxious and, and, and a little over the top and sharing your, you know, and, and we don't want to be weird as Christians. That's what we, that's a mistake we make sometimes being Christians. We're just, you're awkward, you know. I have a guy come to me and say, oh, pastor, uh, I was being persecuted for being a Christian. And so really, what happened? Oh, I was standing on the corner. I was throwing eggs at cars as they went by, telling them about Jesus, you know. And I'm like, no, you weren't persecuted because you're a Christian. You're persecuted because you're a freak. You're persecuted because you're weird has nothing to do with Jesus. Don't put that on Jesus. But definitely having a passion that that, that we we want to share our faith. And when the world doesn't like it, here's here's your choices. You can be a little awkward and, and, and maybe upset a few people. But those same people, if you never told them, and they stand before God on Judgment Day, and they'll say to you, why didn't you tell me? You knew this whole time? And you wouldn't tell me? It's too late for him at that point. And the Bible says that every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. Some will do it willingly and some will do it forced. For those that do it forced, it's not unto salvation. And for that person who's standing before God that day, I don't want to have the, the testimony that I, you know, I didn't tell him. I'd rather be, have him mad at me now than one day in eternity wondering why I wouldn't share my faith with him. You know, in order to share your faith, listen, the Bible says that, that when the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have what? Power. The word is dunamis. It's, it, power doesn't do it justice. It's dynamite power. It's power. It's what the Greek word means. You will have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But that power that God gives you, it says, is to be, not become or, or, or witness, but to be my witnesses. So the power of the Holy Spirit comes on you, and the power of the Holy Spirit helps you to be that witness. And the number one thing that that witnesses in your life for Jesus is love, right? We know that. You can't can't witness to people if you don't love the people that you're witnessing to. You can't share your faith with somebody who you don't genuinely love. Because they're not going to care how much you know until they know how much you care. But we need to be a people that invite people to church, that invite people to faith, that encourage people to read the Word. You know, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the church that God blesses is the church, number one, church of Philadelphia, the only church in the seven letters that God had nothing bad to say about. And the two, several of the things, but two of the things that God says that they did well, he says, number one, that they kept the word of God. And number two, he says they were mission-minded or a missional church. When we think of being mission-minded, we oftentimes think, oh, yeah, we have missionaries in Africa, and we have missionaries in Serbia Serbia, and the country of Georgia, or we go on long-term missions. But really to be mission-minded is every one of us to be missional in our daily lives of sharing the gospel. Amen? Amen. All right, in verse 5, he says, For he who has not put the whole world to come, of which he speaks in subjection to angels, but one testifies in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Now, this is a quote out of Psalms chapter eight or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands and have put all things in a subjection under his feet. Now, if you just read Psalms eight in its context, it, it doesn't really have any messianic connotation to it in of itself. But as Paul puts it together, Paul makes an absolute connection that this is talking about Jesus, the Messiah. And and the first part of Psalms chapter 8 says, "Who, who am I that you were mindful of me? What is man that you were mindful of him? I want to tell you one of the most encouraging and powerful things about God is that God is mindful of you. The Bible says of you, listen, check it out. God knows how many hairs are on your head. You know that number's changing all the time? You don't believe me? Go home and look in your sink. Okay. He and, and that may, probably includes the hairs in your beard. They're on your head, because none of some of you guys don't got them up here. God's got to count the ones. Up. If I was God, I could count some of you guys pretty easy, right? Zero, zero. Pretty easy to count the hairs on your head. But God, God, now, no. Is God concerned about how many hairs are in your beard? Then why does He count them? Why does He keep the number in His heart for every one of us? He loves you that much It's just a little detail to say I I care about every detail of your life In in as much as I I know the number of hairs that are on your head The bible says of god that god has good thoughts toward you It says if the thoughts that god has toward you they're, They're as numerous as the sand is by the seashore and the stars of the sky Jeremiah tells us that god thinks always good thoughts toward you Some mathematician put those two verses together and he said, he said that that would mean in your life, in a regular lifespan of 70 years, that God thinks seven good thoughts about you every second. Every second of your life, God has you specifically, personally on his heart. That's powerful. And, and here the psalmist says, God, who am I that you're mindful of me? Why would you, who am I that you would consider me? When, when, when we consider the vastness of God. How big is our galaxy, you guys? How big is our universe? Have you guys seen that the largest star in our galaxy, let's just take, I think, Betelgeuse. I think it's the third. It, it's so big that I, I can't really even do it justice. The, 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 the sun which dwarfs the earth is a speck, a dot, the head of a pin on the, the, the picture of Betelgeuse. Beetle geese is, I just can't even describe. It's in orbit. Do you know something makes, there was some thrust that that took to start that thing moving? You know what it was? The Bible says it was the finger of God. With his little finger, he went like this and started the universe into motion. It says that God says he measures the universe with the span of his hand. That's between your thumb and your pinky. Is that a big God or a little God? It's a big God. And, and who am I that this, this God is mindful of me? It's powerful. And then he goes on. Now let's switch gears to talking about Jesus. And he says in the end of verse 8 there, middle of verse 8, For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is un, not put under him. Now, but now we do not see, yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So what does that mean? Is that a curveball? Isn't the whole topic here that Paul's talking about that Jesus is greater than the angels and here he says he was made a little lower yet made a little lower than the angels. When did Jesus become a little lower than the angels? Hey, there's something that you guys got to uh, know about and understand really theologically. Super important. Turn with me if you will. You got to go there with me so you can see it. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. This is what we call um, the kenosis chapter. Everybody say kenosis. Kenosis is a Greek word that it means emptied himself. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. Not Ephesians. Philippians chapter 2. Okay, hey, I, I saw a debate with an apologist who doesn't believe in the Trinity, He doesn't believe in the triune God. And for those that, that have a hard time, and he said in his argument, he said, it's just math. It's simply math. One plus one plus one equals three. You cannot get around just simple math. And, 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 I, and I would say to him, well, yeah, one plus one plus one is three. But let me ask you this. What is... God does different math. What is one times one times one? One. It's one. God multiplies. He doesn't add. And and then he said, in the the book of John, it says that the father only knows the time of the return of Jesus. That even the son doesn't know these times. That these times are even hell. And he said, how can Jesus and the father be one if, if the father knows something that Jesus doesn't know? And how can Jesus not know something that the Father knows? And how can Jesus in Hebrews be made a little lower than the angels and still be one God and still be deity and still be greater than the angels? You know, the Muslims make the same argument when they look at the Bible and they think they have us tricked or they have us figured out. I'll tell you it's very easy to understand and you should know this. In Hebrews, it says, I'm sorry, not in Hebrews, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I taught this in detail already once, so some of you guys have heard it already. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Jesus had a certain mind of, of saving you, of salvation. And in this mind that Jesus had, it says, who being in the form of God. So where was Jesus before he was born in a manger? He was in heaven. That wasn't the beginning of Jesus. We see him in the Old Testament. We see him at creation. We see Jesus all the way through the Bible. But Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Even death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him. That, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So this is what we call um, the, the incarnation of Jesus. So that's a, just a fancy word, just meaning that, that in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus in his humanity was fully God, fully man. And and in that state, he, he emptied himself. He laid aside some divine attributes so that he could relate to you and I, so that he could become a man and fulfill the plan of salvation. So in the flesh, as a man, Jesus got tired. Jesus felt pain. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus was sad. He cried when his friend Lazarus died. He experienced life the way that you and I experienced it. Paul's going to go on and explain that Jesus was tempted in all ways as you and I are tempted. That we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us because Jesus in the flesh, he lived this life. He knows what you're going through. He can identify with your troubles and your problems. And yes, for a period of time, the the word kenosis is this, this Greek word that talks about how Jesus emptied himself of certain attributes. Did he ever empty himself of divinity? No, he was always fully God. And how does it work? It's a God thing. I I wish I could fully understand it. But it's true that Jesus on the cross, he felt every, every, every pain. Every one of his muscles, the Bible says, was out of joint and cramping upon the cross. He he was he was beaten thoroughly. He didn't have like a God power in his divinity to protect himself from the pain that he felt when he died on the cross. That he emptied himself of those things, that he became a man, that he lived like you and I. And so, yes, there were some things. And when John in John's gospel, when it says that the father only knows the time, not even the son, that's not because the two are not one. Jesus said, I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. It doesn't change the the deity of Jesus. It doesn't change the triune nature of the God we serve. It's a position that Jesus took. Amen? Okay, if we go back to Hebrews, and we are almost done, you guys. I don't think we'll finish the chapter today, but we want to get you out on time. In verse number 10, let's just go to verse number 10. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to the glory to make captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sacrifices sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, first part of that. There's a different process. Listen, we repent once unto salvation. And you will repent the rest of your life unto sanctification. Okay? Two different ideas. You don't need to keep coming to church and keep getting saved every week. If you've asked Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior, you're saved. You're born again. Okay? You may not be walking close with the Lord or know the Lord, and you need to repent unto, you know, get right with God, but you're saved. When you're saved, you're saved. You can repent once unto salvation. You give your life thoroughly, completely to Jesus. But sanctification is a process of becoming more like Jesus. That's what the word sanctification means. We would all agree that maybe if we've been walking with the Lord for a period of time, that five years ago, ten years ago, we weren't as close to Jesus as we are today, and hopefully we're growing in the Lord. That process is called sanctification. So that Jesus both came and died on a cross for your salvation, and also for the process of your sanctification of you becoming more like Jesus every day. And then the second part of that, verse 11, says that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. You know, God is not ashamed of you. We just read where for the men in the discipleship and the verse that I put on their diploma says that we are not ashamed of him. That we can't live our lives ashamed of the gospel. Jesus said that if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. That's a scary verse. And if you're ashamed of Jesus on this side of eternity, He's going to return that favor on the other side of eternity. And so we have to live our lives unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation to those who believe. And then here he says that he's not ashamed of you. You know what the Bible says in the gospel of John, which is so crazy to me? And I need this. I really do. I got like this ego trouble and I need this bad. I'd struggle without it. You know God loves you, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Does anybody have a problem believing that God loves you? Anybody? God loves you. Let me tell you that. But here's what's crazy. You know what the Bible also says about it? And I've already kind of encouraged you guys a little bit. But in John's Gospel, it also says that God likes you. <laughs> now, that's the part that I need. Because I could get it that he loves me. But I think, oh, he loves me, but he don't like me. You know, it's like that bumper sticker. You know, good thing Jesus loves you because everybody else thinks you're a jerk. You know? And and And, and yeah, I know that Jesus loves me, but... To think and to know that God likes me. That, he, that he, he, if he was here, he'd want to hang out with me. He does want to hang out with me. He wants to spend time with me. You know, that he thinks I'm cool. That, that Jesus not only loves me, but that he likes me and wants to be intimate and personal with me. And you. And that, that's powerful. That's super powerful. You know, and, and, and right, Paul already said, who, who am I that God is mindful of me? Why would God need me or want to spend time with me? But he does. And then that he likes you and that he's not ashamed of you. And then check it out in verse 12. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Do you know what Jesus did while he was in the flesh? With the disciples? He sang songs. Jesus Jesus sang worship songs while he was here. He sang with the disciples. And he sang the same worship songs they sing. And the Bible says that God is here in our midst. That Jesus is here. So every time we're worshiping the Lord together, that the Lord is here. He's singing with us. He's singing next to you. So if you're there like this, are you just not feeling it? Just know that Jesus is, you know, he's in the room worshiping with us. And and, and that he is a worshiper. He's singing and he's, he's worshiping. And then it goes on. It says in, in verse 14, yeah, 14. Okay, i will read thirteen. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, here I am, and the children of God, whom God has given me. Verse fourteen. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in all the same, that through death He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You know, the Bible says of Satan. You know, there's three angels that are mentioned by name in the Bible. When we get to Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels show up and, and they tell Abraham that God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, a- Abraham begins to have a debate with them and with the Lord. And then the angels show up. We never, we never get their names. The only three angels that are named in the Bible are Michael, Gabriel, and Satan, Lucifer. And it says of um, Gabriel that Gabriel is the announcing angel. Whenever God is proclaiming a certain announcement to Mary, to different people in the Bible, it's Gabriel who, who was sent to Daniel in the book of Daniel to bring this message of announcement. And then we see Michael who is the archangel, and Michael is a warring angel. And when you see Michael in the Bible, Michael is fighting Satan. He's, he's warring. He's the angel of the Lord in the Bible who's in charge of battle and array. And then Satan is the third angel, um, archangel who's mentioned in the Bible, And it says that he was arrayed um, in jewels and that he was an angel of light. You know, the thing about a jewel is that a jewel doesn't produce light, but a jewel only reflects light. And and Satan would reflect the light of Jesus, but would have been beautiful in appearance. It was believed, it is believed that one of the duties of of, of the different angels, that one of Satan's um, duties in heaven is he was the worship leader in heaven, was in charge of music. That would explain the worship teams around here, right? Nobody. <laughs> Just kidding. Like they love you guys too much. They won't even laugh at a bad joke. They're like, no, they're too, they're they're too good. So so Satan dis- describes or dis- um, not describes. He disguises himself. The Bible says, right? Can disguise himself as an angel of light. And so we have um, these three angels, and the only three that are mentioned or listed. And then let's, let's pick it up. So Jesus is defeated. Satan basically is what he's telling us there. And then the last thing, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Anybody here afraid of death? No. Hey, anybody ever been to Hearst Castle? William Randall Hearst. He was the media mogul. It's like in uh, Central California, somewhere there along the coast. Hearst Mansion. Somebody raise your hand, please. Thank you. Hey, okay, you guys have been to Hearst Castle. It was like my mom's like, highlight thing to do when I was a kid. So I've been there like seven times. My mom's like, what are we going to do for vacation this summer? I was like, I don't know. What do you want to do? Let's go to Hearst Castle. I'm like again? So we go. Well, we went a bunch. Of, I even took my family. I had to carry tradition on. So I told the boys and my family, like, we got to go. It, it's cool. So, but William Randall Hearst ha- had an a, a uncanny fear of death. He lived his life, um, zoos and I mean, multi, multi, multi multi-billionaire and one of the wealthiest guys that we've ever seen, and and yet he lived his life in complete fear of death. He had a staff, hundreds of people on his staff, on the grounds and in his house, and he would tell him when he'd hire him, if you mention death or dying or anything in this house or around this place, we'll fire you. And a guy had had come and he had told him that one of the, the, the trees on the back half of the property had died, and he was fired on the spot. Because... He had such a fear of death. One of the trees died in the property and they painted it green and waited until he was gone and then switched it out so he wouldn't know. And and I think that that here Paul's talking about, you know, one of the things for us as Christians that's of value. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to end with this, you you no longer have to fear death because death changes for the Christian. If you know that your life is eternal and you're going to live forever in heaven, how do we not long? Paul, Paul struggled so hard in his flesh with this, with this concept because he, he longed so much to be with Jesus and in heaven that he didn't want to stay here on earth. But he knew that God had a call for his life, that he needed to stay here and get busy and do work for Jesus while he was here. But Paul had absolutely no fear of death. And for Christians, I've been around Christians who die. Christians die well. That is a very true statement. Christians die well. You know, Billy Graham would say of himself, don't ever print that I died. Print that I, I have a new home, I have relocated. Chuck Smith would save himself. The newspapers better never say that I die when I, when, I, when I go on to be with the Lord, it better say Chuck Smith moved. He moved to his eternal home, and that's true of us as believers. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't have an assurance of salvation, death can be scary and a fear of death. You know my, my struggle I have the same struggle with Paul to some degree, you know. My wife said, you know, I'm always teasing my wife when she says something about dying and death. And I was like, really? How do I sign up? Can I do that? She says, you're not leaving me here with these kids. And then she'll tell me, well, okay, if you're going to do it, do it now while I'm still young. (laughs) Don't wait. Don't wait. But no fear. You know, I think it's healthy. It's okay if you fear the pain of death, you know. I don't necessarily want to get eaten by a shark. But but, but as the Christians, we die well. And Paul talks about that here. Amen? All right, let's stand. Let's have the worship team come on up.